a very uh, meaty passage for us to look at today. Uh, Let's pray to God that he would help us uh, as we seek to understand it. Father God, we thank you that uh, as we come to your word today, the the veil has been removed, that you have given us your spirit uh, to understand this word and to apply it to our hearts, to be changed by it, that we want to obey it. So, Father, we pray that your spirit would be at work in each of us this morning, changing us to become more and more like your son, the Lord Jesus. For his glory we pray. Amen. We're going to be thinking a little bit this morning about authenticity. Uh, And authenticity is something that's very important in our world, isn't it? Uh, Current elections around the world uh, highlight this to us. uh, As our recent elections uh, demonstrated... Can these leaders be trusted? Are they the real deal? Are they the real McCoy? And an important part of the Morrison versus Shorten leadership challenge was who can be trusted? Who seems most likely to keep their word? It's a very important question for us. Uh, The UK, they're going through it now as well uh, as uh, they look for a new leader. Boris Johnson or Michael Grove or whoever it may be. Who can Britain trust to lead their country at this uh, important time in their history? Well, not only do we value authenticity with leaders, but we also value it in our personal relationships. A friend who can be trusted is worth more than gold. The proverb says, the man of many companions may come to ruin, but there's a friend who sticks closer than a brother. And in this section of 2 Corinthians that we're looking at today, Paul is having to defend his authenticity, his credentials. Is he the real deal? Or were the others, the so-called super apostles that had infiltrated the Corinthian church, were they the real deal? So Paul is having to defend his authenticity and his ministry to the Corinthians. And in this passage, it's as though he presents to us a manifesto of authentic Christian ministry, what it should look like. It's as though... In this passage, Paul is holding up for us a plumb line for authentic ministry. Are we building straight or are we the Leaning Tower of Pisa? Are we in line with authentic biblical ministry or not? It's it's a fantastic passage for any church, any believer to do a litmus test, a, a nap plan, if you like, upon ourselves. Are we in line with authentic biblical ministry? Are we the real deal? Or are we a fake and just fooling ourselves? So today we're going to look at uh, this passage under the following headings. Authentic Christian messenger, authentic Christian message, and authentic Christian believer. So firstly, what should an authentic Christian messenger look like? We see this in uh, verses 14, chapter 2 verse 14 to chapter 3 verse 5. And in this section, Paul gives us two very vivid vivid images of what authentic messengers should look like. And the first image given is of a triumphal procession with the aroma of Christ wafting up into the air. Have a look at verse 14. It says, But thanks be to God, who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession and uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. Now, the Corinthian readers of this letter most likely would have thought here of a Roman victory procession after a great battle victory. But what is striking about this victory procession is what's wafting up into the air. 
It's not the incense from the, the smell of victory from a battle, but it's the, the aroma of Christ. I don't know if you like, uh, like me, and certain smells remind you of certain things. Uh, sometimes good things, like cakes being baked, apple and cinnamon, my favourite, or, or fresh roses or lavender, uh, or even the smell of cut grass, uh, or, or even for some, the smell of petrol, uh, as is the case of one of my work colleagues, uh, Peter, actually enjoys that smell. But there are also certain smells that we find repulsive. Uh, I can still smell very distinctly in my nostrils the smell of the year nine boys area in the school I used to work in. Many of them stunk of BO and they had not discovered uh, deodorant yet. Well, a lot of them had discovered deodorant, cheap deodorant. So what they would do is they would spray as much as they could of this cheap deodorant over their BO and think it all would be well. Well, you'd walk through this area and you would, you'd nearly choke on this uh, smell of this BO and this, this cheap deodorant uh, as you walked through, through this area. It was uh, fairly foul. <laughs> well, at the end of verse 14, Paul equates the fragrance of an authentic messenger as someone who spread the aroma of the knowledge of Christ everywhere. And in verses 15 to 16, we see that this aroma had two effects. To those who are being saved, it's a beautiful perfume that brings life eternal life. To those who are perishing and reject Christ, it's the awful stench of death, eternal judgment. So gospel ministers, gospel messengers should smell of the knowledge of God. You hear them speaking and you watch their lives and everything about them should tell you about the Lord Jesus and his saving message to the world. And you can see why Paul suddenly asks at the end of verse 16, the question, and who is equal to such a task? No one. And he goes on in chapter 3, verses 4 to 6 to say, only those who are confident in Christ and whose competence comes from Christ, not from themselves. Well, that is uh, one vivid image, uh, the, the, the aroma of Christ. And the other is uh, the letters of recommendation. An authentic messenger should look like. Now, Paul's letters of recommendation are not a title before his name or lots of letters after his name or a famous university degree from Cambridge University, like here or somewhere, or a glowing reference from a famous person. Now, have a look at chapter 3, verses 2 to 3 with me. It says, You yourselves are our letter, written on our hearts, known and read by everyone. You show that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. So Paul is saying, you yourselves, you Corinthians, are our letters of recommendation. You are our CV. You're our resume. You are living proof of our ministry. So Paul's letters of recommendation to prove his authenticity as a messenger of the gospel are the Christians in Corinth. Paul established the church there uh, and the fact that there are Christians there demonstrates his authenticity. Similarly, the authenticity of the messengers of Norwest over the years is proven by you. Those who have been saved here, those who have been built up in their faith here through the ministry of the word. You are walking letters of Christ for Norwest Church. You are the CV. You're the resume for Norwest. It's some kind of 
a big task, isn't it? So if we want to test if a church messenger or a church ministry is authentic, we would want to look for evidence of these two things on display. Firstly, that gospel messengers should smell of the knowledge of Christ. Jesus Christ must dominate their ministry, their teaching. The aroma of Jesus should be the dominant smell of this place, of everything that goes on in this place. Secondly, gospel messengers should see lives being changed for Christ. There should be letters of recommendation. And you'll notice in any church where the gospel of Christ has been preached faithfully for a long time, there will be many older godly saints there. Not looking at anyone in particular. Not dinosaurs, but wonderful letters of recommendation for the ministry of Christ that has gone on there. Now, if you really want to tell if a Christian ministry is authentic, the real deal, the real McCoy, then we want to listen carefully to the Christian message that is being preached. Uh, And that brings me to my second point, an authentic Christian message. And we see this in chapter 3, verses 7 to 11. And in this section of 2 Corinthians, Paul continues to defend his ministry against the false apostles who have infiltrated the church in Corinth Because what these false teachers, they're trying to do is they're trying to drag the Corinthian church back to the old covenant law of Moses, which sounds crazy to us. Why would you want to go back to the old covenant, to the old law of Moses? But we need to understand this is very Jewish times still, and it was not uh, easy for them to to quickly give up the old ways uh, of, of the old covenant Jewish way of life that had existed and had been followed for for thousands of years. So in chapter 3, verses 7 to 11, Paul's emphasis is on the glory of the new covenant message of Christ in comparison to the old covenant message of Moses. If you have a look at verses 7 to 11, you'll notice that glory dominates this section. Uh, Anyone see how many times is the word glory mentioned in verses 7 to 11? Anyone really quick at maths? Many? Ten. That's fast. Uh, they can have an extra biscuit at morning tea today. <laughs> there is ten in this, in, this short, uh, number, in this short passage. So Paul is at pains to just emphasise how glorious the new covenant message of Christ is. It's a little bit like the sun and the moon. Uh, I don't know if you have a favourite spot for viewing the moon. Uh, I didn't until I, I thought about it doing this talk. Uh, but I love watching a ginormous full moon over Sydney Harbour, particularly when it's low and it it seems to be extra, extra big at that time. And it it lights up the whole harbour and the water just magically glistens in the light and it's it's like there's a, uh, a silver highway just straight to the moon. It's breathtaking. Now, you know what happens if you stay there overnight and continue to, to watch that moon, and you, you watch the sunrise, and it's, it's been a, a number of years before I've stayed up all night and, and watched the sunrise, particularly in a city. But let's imagine that you did. You stayed up all night, and you watched the sunrise, and uh, you, you keep watching the moon as well. And you think, yeah, there, there, there's the moon. I think that's the moon. And you can sort of see it off in this little, little speck in the distance. and think, yeah, maybe that's it. It becomes dimmer. And it fades away. It's the, the, it's the sun on the right there and that's the moon on the left, just to, just to clarify that. Uh, but as the sun keeps going up and up, the, the moon just kind of fades away even more until it's like a, a little speck in the sky. 
And, and that's Paul's argument here with the old covenant uh, and, and the new covenant. The new covenant is like the glorious sun and, and the old covenant uh, is, is, is like the moon fading away. So the old covenant law of Moses, it was glorious when it was given at Mount Sinai, but it's now been surpassed by the new covenant message of Christ. The old covenant message uh, of Moses is, is fading glory, while the new covenant message of Jesus, it's a permanent glory that lasts forever, that lights up the world, that, that lights up your life, because it is of the resurrected Jesus, which is an indestructible glory that will never disappear. So the old covenant law of Moses was glorious, but it ultimately it was a ministry of condemnation and death. We see in verse 7, it says, Now of the ministry that brought death, the old covenant, and in verse 9, a ministry that brought condemnation was glorious. And the reason that it, uh, it, uh, it is a ministry of condemnation is death is because if we hold up the old covenant law of Moses to our life, the, the Ten Commandments, uh, the verdict is guilty. Uh, if, if this passport photo here, if I have a passport photo, this is a passport photo of you, that's actually of, of me, but let's just imagine that it was of you and it, it represents us all here. Now, the old covenant law is summarised as love God with all your heart, soul, strength and mind and love your neighbour as yourself. We all fail, don't we? We're, we're all guilty. So the law condemns us and the verdict is death. But because Christ came, if this represents uh, Christ, and Christ is uh, perfectly righteous and he sheds his blood for us, for our sins, so if we are in him, then we are forgiven. We're declared righteous, as verse 9 says. The righteousness of Jesus is, is given to us. So if you believe in Jesus, God sees you today as perfect, as righteous, as justified, as forgiven. Amazing news. That is your status today if you've put your trust in Jesus. So why would the Corinthians want to go back to the, to the old covenant that just brought condemnation and death? Why would they want to do that? Well, there is in our human nature a sinful desire that wants to be able to say, I'm a good person, I've done good things in my life, I deserve to be saved. That is at work in all of us. But as soon as someone says, you're saved by Jesus plus something else, you destroy the glory of the new covenant message of Christ. You destroy the grace of God. Uh, Archbishop William Temple uh, in the early 1900s famously said, the only thing that I can offer to God are the sins I need forgiveness of. Uh, someone else has wisely said that false Christianity is spelled with two letters. D-O, do, what you do. True Christianity is spelled with four letters. D-O-N-E, done. It is done for us through Christ, his death at the cross. Our sins are completely forgiven. So a good way to test if the Christian message in a church is authentic or not, is to ask, is the message taught completely focused on the saving work of Jesus? Or other things being added to it, or perhaps deducted from that saving message of Jesus? Because Jesus plus or Jesus minus 
is always a great warning sign in a church, in a, in a Christian message. So we need to always look out for that. Now Paul now moves on from focusing on the glory of the authentic New Covenant message to the impact of this message upon the believer, which brings me to my final point, an authentic Christian believer. We see this in chapter 3, verses 12 to 18. And this is where we get a bit personal. Are we an authentic Christian? It's a very confronting question and a question that we need to be very careful with as there are many here who would struggle with assurance. There are people who are 100% committed Christians but who doubt regularly and often think, am I really a Christian? I don't feel like it much of the time or a lot of the time perhaps. So how can you tell if we are an authentic, genuine Christian. Two things I want to highlight here in verses 12 to 18. Justification and transformation. Verse 12 highlights the importance of justification. Verse 12 says, Therefore, since we have such a hope, therefore, what has just been said before, what is this hope we have? It's based on what has just been said about this Christian message in verses 7 to 11, justification. Uh, Helpful way to remember that, the old Sunday school uh, memory way for justified, just as if I'd never sinned. Uh, Justified for Sunday school adults, a bit more advanced, is just as if I'd always done what is right. There's no difference. Just as if I'd never sinned, just as if I'd always done what is right. They're both true. That's what justification is. So have you truly believed in Jesus' death and resurrection for you? Have you confessed your sins to God and put your trust completely in Jesus to save you? Have you done that? Then praise God You are saved, you are justified, you are declared right with God. And it's like Judgment Day has been brought forward to the 16th of June, 2019, to today. And you're already declared right with God this very day. So you can now approach the last day, Judgment Day, with great freedom and confidence, knowing that you have been declared right, that your sins have been forgiven. But our new status of being justified, it doesn't stop there. It includes transformation, where we are changed to become more like Christ. Now, we need to be really careful here because it does not mean justification plus transformation. It means justification will include and naturally result in transformation, where we're changed into Christ-likeness. It's like when a caterpillar turns into a butterfly. It's very strange for that butterfly to keep acting like a caterpillar. You say, what are you doing, butterfly? You're not a caterpillar anymore. Fly. Enjoy your your newfound freedom. Enjoy your wings. Go and enjoy your freedom. And it's the same when someone puts their trust in Jesus. It'd be very strange for that person to keep going back to their old way of life and not acting as though they're a Christian. No, we're born again. If anyone is in Christ, they're a new creation. The old has gone, the new as here, is here. Now, this can be tricky talking about transformation, sanctification, another way to, to refer to it, because some things may suddenly change for us when we become Christians. 
But other things may take a little bit longer to change, mightn't they? For example, when I, was, uh, when I became a Christian as a 22-year-old, I suddenly, almost overnight, stopped getting drunk. While other aspects of my life, my sinful nature, have taken years to change and are still being changed so frustratingly slowly. And I'm sure you have that experience as well. And these struggles with different sins will will differ for each of us. And it can feel so slow. But in verses 12 to 18, we see what sort of change and transformation we should be seeing in in our lives as believers in Christ. So firstly, in verse 12, we see that we begin to speak boldly for Christ. We just want to tell others about this great message of of justification, that we, we can be saved from our sins. And then in verse 17, we see the freedom we have in Christ. There is now no condemnation. There's no death for the believer. There is great freedom that we experience if we are, uh, have been saved by Christ. And then in verse 18, we see that we are transformed into Christ's likeness. And I want to finish today by focusing on verse 18. Uh, it's one of my favourite verses in the Bible because it gives us such hope and confidence. Let me read it to you. Verse 18 of chapter 3 says, And we all, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So transformation and uh, into the likeness of Christ can sometimes feel very slow, and this, and this verse recognises this. The ESV, which is a more literal translation, says we're transformed from one degree of glory to the next, one small degree. It is, it is, it is so slow. But the sailors will know that one degree over a long distance is significant. Now, this verse is not saying that each year that I get older, I'm another degree more like Christ, unfortunately. It says, as we behold the glory of the Lord Jesus, we are transformed into his likeness by the power of the Holy Spirit. As we keep holding up the mirror onto Christ, on the life of Christ, we are transformed. As we keep looking to Christ and his word in prayer and in our living, we start to become more and more like him ever so slowly. Because what we behold the most, what we look at the most, we become like. What we look at shapes us. It transforms us. Our brain scientists tell us today that our brains can be trained to fall in love with anything, even a a chair or or a shoe or, or a sock. If we look at these things longingly enough, we can fall in love with them, which is a little bit of a scary thought. So we need to be very careful about what we spend most of our time looking at, don't we? Because it will change our very brains. Not only our heart, it will change our very brains. The wiring in our brains. And the glory of Jesus' ministry as described in verses 7 to 11. That message of justification needs to dominate our minds. We can't just pick up uh, the Bible for five minutes each day and then forget about it for the rest of the day and think that 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 will change us. No, we need to discipline and train ourselves like Paul to be continually finding our joy in Christ in all things. So let me finish by telling you a wonderful story of modest but glorious transformation. It was my father-in-law. I watched him become a Christian 
and over a period of 15 years, slowly become more and more like Christ. When I first met him, he was a complete atheist, one of the most sarcastic and cynical people uh, I knew uh, about God and about Christianity. He was always taking a dig wherever he could. Then he decided that he would start going along to church as a 55-year-old to keep his wife company. Uh, And he was so impacted by the ministry of this church. He was still not a Christian, but he'd come home saying, oh, the people there, they're so wonderful, such wonderful people. Oh, the message, it was so helpful. Uh, He'd come home and he'd share that. And then finally, one year, one Easter, he finally understood the Christian message and he became born again. And all of a sudden, we started having these really deep theological discussions about all kinds of things. And I, I couldn't believe my, my ears. I had to kind of pinch myself if it was real. And then over the next 15 years, as I watched him, he ever so slowly changed. He became more and more like Jesus. He became more Christ-like as a, as a husband, more Christ-like as a father. And then in the last year of his life, he developed this very strong confidence in Jesus. He had a real freedom, a real peace about him. And as I look back over those 15 years of his life, I can see this slow change from one degree of glory to the next. Nothing radical, but over time, significant. So much so that in the last hours of his life, he was truly very Christ-like and ready to meet his Lord and Saviour. As verse 18 says, he was now ready to contemplate the Lord's glory face-to-face. He was ready to see Jesus face-to-face and be transformed completely to become like him. And that's how it works. One degree of glory. Is that happening in our lives? Are we being transformed into Christ-likeness? Well, today I want to finish by saying uh, the confession together. Uh, It's a bit of a different way to, to finish a sermon. Because as we hold up the plumb line to authentic Christian ministry, we all fall short of the glory of God. And we need to turn, we need to repent, we need to turn back, turn from our sins, we need to turn back to God. And we need to put our trust in him evermore. That, we would, that he would keep changing us into the image of Christ. So that's what we're going to do now. We're uh, going to ask God to forgive us for our sins. And perhaps you've never done this before. A, you you, you realise this morning, perhaps I'm not a Christian. And you want to turn to him for the first time. We're going to confess our sins and ask him to strengthen us to serve him and live for his glory more and more each day. So before we say these words on the screen, let's just take a moment to to reflect on areas of our life where we would love Jesus to be transforming us more and more and changing us to be more like Jesus. Let's do that. let's say these uh, words of confession uh, on the screen together. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we humbly admit that we need your help. We have sinned against you in thought, word and deed and in what we have failed to do. You alone can save us, have mercy on us, wipe out our sins and teach us to forgive others. Strengthen us to serve you and live our lives to your glory 
through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. We'll hear these wonderful words of assurance from Psalm 103. If we put our trust in Jesus, it says, As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. What great news.